This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Bible League. Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. What is the real cost of discipleship? Well, the Lord Jesus laid it out for us in Luke 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And the Lord adds, any one of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. These are stunning words, but they're they are, and they are likely particularly stunning to us Americans who are used to having religious freedom and every material advantage known to man. Christianity isn't supposed to be hard, right? Well, that's probably why, as my next guest points out, the church in our day is so weak, so ineffective, so worldly, and so cowardly. The Lord who laid down his own life to pay for our sin and rose again to secure our salvation deserves so much better from us. But will we repent and wake up and pursue him on the narrow way? We're going to talk about the this today with Matt Walsh of The Daily Wire. He's also host of the podcast, The Matt Walsh Show, and author of the book we'll be talking about right now called Church of Cowards, A Wake-Up Call to Complacent Christians. Matt, wonderful to have you with us. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Talk a little bit, if you would, about Church of Cowards. I agree with what you're saying in this book. I think it's a wake-up call for all of us. But how do you think cowardice has really defined a lot of what we see in modern Christianity? Well, I think uh, you find it in, in several different facets of, uh, of Christianity and of the Church. And, you know, you can look, first of all, at so many Church leaders, of course, not, not all of them, we're just speaking generally here, but in so many cases, the, the leaders of the Church have uh, decided, and this has been happening over the course of many decades now, have decided that uh, they don't want to engage on moral issues, uh, on on the issues that really matter in our culture, and yep. speak to those issues and show leadership, yep. and call their flocks to repentance and sacrifice and uh, obedience, and all of these things. I guess because the idea is that uh, it'll scare people away, and, and that uh, we won't be tolerant enough, won't sound tolerant enough. And I think that there are many reasons for that, but cowardice, moral cowardice, is part of the part of the the, the uh, motivation there. And then even I think we have to face just as Average Christians, as as members of the flock, uh, as congregants like myself, people in the pews, many of us, I think, have gotten complacent and, and far too comfortable and uh, afraid of, of making sacrifices. Oh, I agree and with so you. And so you know, the book deals with that. Too. Yeah, totally right. Well, you talk, for example, about churches without crosses, churches without religious symbols. I've never liked that either. What do our very buildings tell the world, do you think, about what we think of Jesus Christ? Do we look like we're ashamed of the gospel? Because this has been going on since the church growth movement really kind of came up through the 1980s. I've never liked it. I know a lot of other Christians don't really like it. What do you think about that? These warehouses houses with no indication on the outside in the architecture or anything else that this is a gathering of people who are sold out to Jesus Christ. Yeah, and 
well, listen, if, if you live in a, in a place, uh, let's say you live in a persecuted country, and, and uh, you, you have no choice but to meet, you know, in some nondescript building or in a home or, you know, back as they used to, as Christians used to do in the catacombs or caves, of course, in that case, then that's what you do, and that, and that glorifies God all the same. So, um, but in, in this country, that's not what we face. And so what you find are, are wealthy Christian communities that have plenty of money to spend on building a church. And oftentimes there's a decision made to build it in a way that it, so that it won't look like a church, as if they're trying to hide from the persecutors, yeah. which, which they're not. Yeah. Uh, it, it, and, it, and it seems like they're ashamed. They don't want people to know. They don't want to broadcast too loudly that, hey, this is a church. They're, 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 in many cases, it doesn't even say the word church anywhere on the church. And you could, you could say all you want, that, well, what does that matter? It doesn't have to say church. But, but I would come at it from the other perspective, from the other direction. Why, why not put it on there? What are you afraid of? What are you ashamed of? It's a church. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Why don't you want people to know that? Exactly. Well, and they would say, we don't want to offend anybody. We want to have as many people who don't know the Lord come to our church as possible, and that might turn them off. Well, if that's what you need to do in order to bring people in, then what kind of gospel will they get when they come through your doors anyway? It's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that you're going to water down the gospel if that's your approach. Exactly. If people are, if you're bringing people in who don't want to be in a church, and so you what trick them into walking in the doors? Well, if you if you give them the real gospel, they're just going to go running right 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 back out the doors again yeah. because you you got them in on false pretenses. Yeah. So what what ends up happening? What ends up happening most of the time is that what's happening inside the building is reflected by what the building looks like. And so if it's if it's a building that's afraid to look like a church, then oftentimes the message is is also a message. That's uh, where it seems like they're afraid to you know, advertise themselves as Christian. Yeah, for sure. You have a great title. I mean, it's a sad title, but I think it's accurate. Christians Not Worth Killing is the title of the first chapter in your book. Why do you think American Christians or maybe those who call themselves Christians aren't behaving like Christians? I talk about this a lot. I have the same concerns you do. What really concerns you when you look at people who are professing Jesus Christ and, and yet their behavior does not line up with that same profession? I think we have to ask ourselves the question, um, you know, if if we are Christian and somebody were to follow us around on on, on, on any given day and see what we do and, and the things that we say and the choices that we make and even the way we dress and the kinds of entertainment that we choose to partake in, everything, you know, and they were to see that and then they were to compare it with just Joe Schmo, secular atheist guy, would they see any real difference? Would there be really any significant difference in, in the things that we do and say and how we conduct ourselves as compared to someone who is not a Christian? I think for so many of us, the answer is no, that if someone were following us around in that way, they, they wouldn't be able to really tell that we're Christian based on anything that we've said or done or, or, or how we conduct ourselves. And, uh, and, and that's part of this a dynamic where we are being encouraged as Christians to blend in with the culture yep. and not just to resist it and not to stand up and fight against it um, and to be tolerant and so on and so forth. Oh, you're so right about that. And going back to what you said a few minutes ago, when you talk about Christian leaders not wanting to offend anybody and part of what ails us is the men behind the pulpit. But that's that really became obvious to me. And I've told this story, I think, once before on the show. But when I went to the March for Marriage in Washington, this was the day that Prop 8 was being heard and the DOMA cases were being heard at the Supreme Court. The, the lack of big mega church pastors and their congregants was 
jarring to me because I said, we have these massive churches across America. Where are these Christians at a, a really important moment in our cultural history and, and our political history when you are seeing these important cases being decided on homosexuality and what will go forward from here? Where are all the Christians? But isn't that kind of a, a, a an important point here that if your Christianity is not making a difference in your life, then what kind of Christianity are you professing? Exactly. And we, I think the numbers will tell us that 80% or 75% or whatever it is of the country is Christian. And we know that the, the real number is much lower than that. And, and this is what you mentioned is one of the ways we know it, because if all of us, if, if there were hundreds of millions of, uh, of, of actual Christians in this country, then we wouldn't have you know, marriage would not be in a state that it is. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be seeing millions of babies being killed uh, in the womb in abortion clinics because yeah. as a Christian culture, we would stand up and rise up and we would not tolerate that. It just simply could not happen. We wouldn't allow it to continue. Uh, it only happens because either there are many Christians who support it or more commonly, they don't care enough to stand up and fight against it. Yeah, I agree. Do you think a lot of this goes back to money for some of these big church pastors that they don't want to lose people from giving to their church? They don't want to offend anybody, step on anybody's toes. Do you, th- do you think that's much of a factor in all of this, the fear of losing funding? Absolutely. The fear of losing funding, the fear of, uh, you know, the, the fear of, of reprisals in terms of the, you know, being tax exempt. Um, if you get too political, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot of fear tied up in it, and some of it is is uh, is perhaps warranted. And in the in, in the in the in the sense that what they're worried about happening may in fact happen. I mean, you know, if, you, if you if you're in a big mega church and you've got a, a lot of big donors, thousands of people coming in, and um, all of a sudden one day you decide to you decide to get up there and start really preaching the gospel and engaging on these issues. You probably will scare many of them away, and you're going to lose a lot of money. That's true. Um, I'm not going to pretend that you won't, but it, 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 I, we're, we're told in the gospel repeatedly that these are sacrifices we're supposed to be willing to make. We That's have to right. be willing to make. You're right. You're right. Hang on a moment. We do need to pause for a quick break with Matt Walsh. Church of Cowards is his book. We'll come right back on Janet Meffer today. If you could ease the suffering of a persecuted Christian right now, would you? Hi, it's Janet Mefford, and I know you would. Hebrews 13.3 urges us to remember those who are persecuted, noting that when the body of Christ anywhere suffers, we suffer together. These believers live where evangelism is criminalized, where churches are burned, and where Bibles are scarce. They need the hope found only in God's Word, and your gift today lets them know they're not forgotten. For only $5, a believer like Anna in Africa will receive a Bible, be discipled in her new faith, and trained to share Christ. $35 sends seven Bibles, $100 sends 20, and a limited time Bible for Bible match will help us meet our goal of sending the hope of God's Word to 1,200 persecuted Christians. Become a Bible sender today by calling 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Once again, call now, 800-YES-WORD. The healthcare open enrollment period has ended. Did you miss it? 
Don't go a whole year without having a health care program. Sign up with Liberty HealthShare. As a Christian healthcare sharing ministry, Liberty HealthShare is not insurance, so you can still sign up. In fact, you can sign up any time of year, and there are no contracts. Starting as low as $199 a month, Liberty HealthShare has memberships for singles, couples, and families, so you can choose the ideal program for your situation. Plus, Liberty HealthShare has no network, so you're free to pick your own doctors, hospitals, and providers. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Go to libertyhealthshare.org JMT for more information. libertyhealthshare.org JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Boy, I really appreciate this new book from Matt Walsh, Church of Cowards, Matt from the Daily Wire. We are so complacent oftentimes in the United States, and we see the contrast, Matt, as we hear about all these persecuted Christians around the globe. And you were making the point before when we were talking about how much funding may have to do with some of the fear that big pastors have of taking a stand on controversial issues. But look at the contrast. You look at persecuted Christians in parts of the Middle East and Africa, Nigeria, places like this, who are giving their very lives to be faithful to Jesus Christ. I think about the ISIS uh, beheadings on that beach where you had all of those men who refused to deny Jesus Christ and were beheaded. And and you think about this, going back to this title that you have in your first chapter, were Christians not worth killing, precisely because you doubt, it would seem, that we would have the same stance if we were really persecuted. And I'm not really sure we would have the same response. What, what are your thoughts on all of that? And Right, and I think that, uh, of course, none of us can really know what we would do in that situation, so I'm not going to sit here and say that, oh, if it was me, I would be, I'd I'd be laying down my life. I hope that I would, but I can't say that I would. Um, And I think we've gotten so comfortable in this culture and so used to that comfort that the idea of sacrificing anything, I mean, forget about sacrificing your life. And the question, one of the questions I ask in the book is, you know, look at your own life and ask yourself, have you sacrificed anything at all for your faith? Hmm. Uh, I mean, really, anything. Have you made any real significant sacrifices of any kind? I think a lot of us would have to say, no, not really. And uh, I find that even a conversation like our entertainment choices, when I talk about that, and I, you know, if, if, you, if you suggest to uh, uh, your fellow Christians that, hey, you know, this show that you guys are watching, might not be might not be the most edifying thing. Maybe we should think about not watching that show. Uh, maybe we should think more about entertainment that, that brings us closer to God. Even something like that, the the backlash and the response you're going to get from a lot of Christians is vicious because the idea that they would even have to give up some Netflix show that they don't that they enjoy is uh, is they they sort of draw the line there. So you have to ask yourself, you know, if you're not willing to give up a Netflix show, for example, then is there any chance that you would actually allow your head to be cut off uh, for your faith? Mm. Probably not. Yeah, very convicting. I, I think about that because a lot of people in evangelicalism, for example, will look back on the old days, all oh, those legalists who didn't want to go to the movies and didn't want to dance and didn't want to do anything. I'm sure there was some legalism involved, but for a lot of those Christians, it was just a matter of doing what you're talking about. I am not of this world. I am a Christian. I have a different master than this world does, and I need to obey him, and that needs to be lived out in my daily life. And these days, you go on Twitter and you try to talk about why watching Game of Thrones might be a bad idea for a Christian and you get screamed at. How dare you, you legalist? I mean, how did we get the idea that obeying God and pursuing a life of holiness is legalism? 
Uh, yeah, well, it's, it's an easy, it's a cover for people who don't want, and I, I think the people who engage in that, and they, who, who respond that way, I think at some level they must know what they're doing. Uh, and, 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 I, and I think I know that because we've all, we've all been there before. I mean, I, I, I've had moments where someone says something to me about my own conduct or something that I'm doing, and my first reaction is kind of, how dare you? What, what, what are you talking about? Yeah. So we've all had moments like that, and, uh, and you start rationalizing, but we have, to, we have to back away from that and realize that, you know, this isn't about this isn't about being holier than thou or self righteous. It's just about do you do you believe these things that you claim to believe or not? And and if you do believe them, then obviously that should have an impact, significant impact on everything you do and everything you, you say and even the entertainment choices that you make. Totally right. Matt, would you talk a little bit about this problem of us bowing in submission? You talk about this in your book as well, and I think that's especially noticeable on the LGBT issue and how I see at least the church capitulating right and left basically on everything or most everything that Big Gay is pushing for. I mean, what are your thoughts on the capitulation that you see within churches today? On that issue, maybe some others, but that one is a real big one, the LGBT issue. I think uh, it, culturally, uh, on the LGBT issue, it, it's been lost culturally by, by Christians uh, we, because we've become so, so overwhelmed by, by the other side of it. And, and, that's, and that's because I think, you know, I, I, there are many things that go into it. We could talk about that for hours. But I think one of the things that's happened is the other side of that debate uh, it hasn't really been presenting arguments. Instead, they just scream the word bigot at you, no matter what you say, if you, if you don't go along with everything they want. Yep. To include at this point things like um, agreeing with drag queen story hours at the library, yeah. you're sending your kids in to have stories read to them by drag queens. Even something like that, if you don't agree with it, you're a bigot, and they just shout bigot, bigot, bigot. And what we've discovered, apparently, is that that's a very powerful, I, I call it an argument, it's not, but that's a very powerful argument, quote-unquote, uh, because many people just, they, they, they can't handle being called that. And we have to get to a point where, look, first of all, actual bigotry is a terrible thing. We all agree with that. But standing up for your own moral values, that's not bigotry. And yeah. saying this or that is a sin, that's not bigotry. Um, it's only a bigotry if you're, if you're looking at one group and saying, well, they're the only sinners, and I'm perfect. Okay, that's bigotry. But as long as that's not your message, you're saying, hey, we're all sinners. We all have a moral law that we have to comply with or should comply with. I'm, I'm under that same umbrella as you. Um, that's not bigotry at all. And so we have, we have to realize that, and we also have to get to a point where these fallacious, lazy claims of bigotry just don't bother us, where they just roll off our back. Yep. And uh, I think that's the point we have to get to. Oh, yeah. And, and getting back to your earlier point, if you can't stand being called a bigot or a hater or a homophobe, how in the world are you going to really stand for your faith when the persecution ramps up? In a way, this is a bit of a test. What are we made of as Christians if we can't stand firmly on our biblical principles and say, no, you're not going to have a guy in a dress and a boa reading stories to my two-year-old and then allowing the two-year-old to flop on the floor with this guy? I mean, if you can't take a stand on that sort of issue, how in the world are you going to stand on anything that's difficult, right? I mean, and that's and that's what really scares me about some of this. Uh, the, the more extreme things we're seeing now, the drag queen story hours and the, the gender stuff, and uh, you know, sending men into the, to the to the girls' bathroom and that sort of thing. It's it's so extreme. It's so absurd. Uh, it, it doesn't it doesn't just defy morality, but it defies common sense. Yeah. Totally irrational. These things that we're seeing, and it should be really easy to argue against. And and the fact is. I think almost everyone disagrees with it. You, you talk about having uh, you know a man uh, fighting, uh, boxing or something against a woman, saying pretending to be a woman, uh, or, or these boys that, that race against girls on the track because they say they're girls. 
almost everyone you talk to says, this is crazy. This, this doesn't make any sense. Right. But yet we allow it to continue because this, that label of bigotry is, is so powerful for so many people that we would, rather, we, we would rather have our culture descend into madness and see the destruction of, for example, women's sports. We'd rather have that happen than risk being called a bigot. I know. You're right on the money about that, and it's a shame. And you talk also about Christian culture and secular culture not being able to merge into one, which is absolutely right. We're supposed to remember as Christians that we're in the world, but we're not of it. We seem to have mixed that up in our modern American culture. How would you call Christians back to understanding this idea that if you're not of the world, the Bible actually means that, that you're not of the world, you are to stand apart, you are set apart by God as his ambassadors for Jesus Christ. I mean, what do you think is the real wake-up call that needs to be issued at this time? I think we have to realize that secular culture, I mean, you said before about different masters, secular culture has a different master, uh, and they are, it's 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 more it's its foundation is in something entirely different and opposite from and antithetical to the gospel and so that that simply means and I wish it wasn't that way I, I wish that we lived in a Christian culture we don't though unfortunately so uh, what that, that what that means is that if we want to be Christians then we're going to have we're, we are going to be living in a way that is different from and seems foreign to so much of the rest of the culture. And that, again, is, is right in the gospel. Uh, we're, we're warned that that's the way that it's going to be. And you know what? It's also, what I try to tell people is, it's not such a bad thing, because it's not like what the secular culture is selling is, is something wonderful and joyful. People aren't happy in secular culture. People are depressed. There's drug, drug abuse, suicide, you know, alcoholism is skyrocketing, all these things, which tells you that people are unhappy. They, they can't find meaning in their lives. They're in despair. That's what secular culture is selling. It's not very appealing when you think about it. Um, and so it, sh- it shouldn't be so difficult in the end to reject it. Right, exactly. What What do you want to keep from this secular culture when you see all the moral rot that's running through the sewers of uh, immorality that we have in our streets today? It's just insane. What about our kids, Matt? What would you say about the issue of educating our kids and making sure that they are very much our focus in, in really making sure that they don't go the way of our secular culture right now? I think people are very afraid of, you hear the phrase I talk about in the book of, you don't want to put your kid in a bubble. Uh, but I, I, I guess I'm strange. I happen to think that, at least with our young kids, that's exactly what we should be doing as yep. Christians, as parents, yep. uh, effectively, putting, putting them in a bubble. And, and what that means is, um, is that we're, it's a bubble of protection. We're, we're trying to preserve their innocence. We're trying to protect them spiritually, morally, even physically. And, uh, and equip them, get them ready to go out into the world and to be warriors for Christ. But at the age of six years old or seven or eight or nine or ten or twelve, they're not ready yet. They have not been equipped. They're not prepared to do it. And if you send them out without that protection, without that so-called bubble, and just throw them out into the world, feed them to the wolves, they're going to get devoured, almost all of them. Kids are not strong enough. They, they can't be. It's not, it's not too much to ask of them to expect them to go out. I know parents will say, well, you know, I want my kid to be a light to others, a light to yeah, not now. Your seven-year-old is not going to be a light to anyone. Your seven-year-old doesn't know anything. He needs, he needs to be guided. He needs to, he needs to help you help him put on the armor of Christ. He doesn't have it on yet. Right. He's not old enough for that. Right. Um, so you're, just, you're asking too much of him, and I think we have to give kids that, that insulation from the world so that they can grow into them 
themselves and grow into their faith. Yeah, good thoughts. Matt, when you look around, and I know there's so much to be depressed about, but what gives you hope, if anything, right now? It, it may be that we've reached the bottom of the barrel or we're so near it that things might turn around. The Lord might grant us repentance and crying out to him again. Do you, do you have any cause for hope right now when you're looking across the spectrum? Well, we know ultimately there's uh, all the cause in the world for hope because we've seen We've, we've read the, the last page of the book, as it were, and we, we know where all this is headed ultimately. So there's, there's of course, we have that hope there always. In terms of right, in terms of right now and in, and in culture, uh, I, I do have some hope in the fact that uh, there is a core of younger, uh, in the younger generation, of people who are hungry for true faith um, and, and want to reject a lot of what the culture is selling. You go to some of the really conservative Orthodox churches that are on fire for the faith, doing things in a more traditional way. Many of them are, are, are young, young families Good. Uh, with people that are very excited about the pro-life movement. It's a young movement as well. And so that's, that's hope that I find there. I love it. Matt Walsh, Church of Cowards. Thanks a lot, Matt. God bless you. Thank you. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Bible League. Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back, and thanks to all of you who are helping our great campaign for Bible League. I know these are difficult times right now. There is a lot of uncertainty, and I recognize that there is a lot of worry among many, many, many Americans concerning the economy. I am absolutely convinced that God will take care of us and that we will come through this in the end. And I am trusting the Lord, as I know you are too, for what is going on, not only in our own nation, but across the world. But, you know, we need to keep our focus on not just what is going on in the United States. That's what this pandemic points out, but also on what is going on across the world. And we've been telling you about all of these persecuted Christians worldwide who are in desperate need of Bibles. And for $5, you can send a Bible to a persecuted Christian. We are trying to get 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians worldwide by the end of April. There is a matching gift. So if you can give $5 for a Bible, that will be $10 and two Bibles will be sent. A $35 gift will send seven Bibles. We're trying to, again, get to that number of 1,200 Bibles by the end of April. If you are able to help out, we would really appreciate it. The number to call is 800 yes Word, W-O-R-D. That's 800-YES-WORD. There's a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com as well if you're online. Or again, the toll-free number to call is 800-YES-WORD. We really appreciate your support right now. Well, let's get into some of the details. First and foremost, who's surprised that the Democrats sunk the Senate coronavirus stimulus plan to give all this cash to families. And you can read all the details, obviously, about that. It's $1,500 per couple, but it's not done. Congress was unable to reach this agreement yesterday on this $1 trillion plus stimulus package that gives out money to families and helps to keep small businesses afloat during this pandemic. Rand Paul, the senator from Kentucky, is now the first U.S. senator to confirm that he has tested positive for coronavirus. 
But as to the Democrats, they balked at the push by the Senate's GOP to set aside $425 billion for loans to select companies and industries. They called it a slush fund for the Treasury to direct as it sees fit. They said the bill is tilted toward corporations instead of working people. This is via the Washington Times. How in the world you can claim it's not aimed at working people is a little odd when you're talking about giving out cash to families. Senate Majority Leader McConnell dared Democrats to reject the Senate measure in a procedural vote yesterday as tales of joblessness and woe poured in from every part of the nation. And he said this national crisis is not going to wait around if Congress slips back into conventional politics or haggles endlessly over the finer points. In other words, it is just about time to take yes for an answer. The vote was 47 to 47. It needed 60 votes to advance. Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, said her troops will go back to the drawing board and finish their own bill, hoping it is compatible with what the Senate wants. This woman needs to put aside politics and understand we're in the midst of a national emergency and quit playing games. And, you know, I hope the American people will give credit where credit is due and give blame where blame is due in the end, not so we can further politicize things. I'm talking about down the road as we look to see who is really trying to step up and solve all of the myriad details that come along with shutdowns. I mean, it's just, you know, we're living in absolutely unprecedented times, as everybody knows. In fact, Stephen Mnuchin, however you pronounce his name, the Treasury Secretary, said yesterday that it could be 10 to 12 weeks of a lockdown in the United States. Americans are adapting to the biggest change in daily life since World War II, with schools closed, sports canceled, and economic upheaval as job losses mount, with the shuttering of businesses across many industries. As we know, hospitals are scrambling for protective equipment for healthcare workers and ventilators as they brace for a wave of patients who will need help breathing. We don't yet know how many people will overwhelm the system if and when it gets to that point. But as you USA Today reports U.S. cases climbed to over 25,000 on Sunday morning. At least 325 people have died. But listen to this, about half the cases in New York State. That's where half the cases are. Half the cases are in one state. Now let's go to that state because I want to talk a little bit about the reaction from people like Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York City. He's got his own problems, but there was an interview over on Meet the Press, Chuck Todd interviewing Governor Larry Hogan of Maryland, a Republican, fact-checking Bill de Blasio on the coronavirus response from President Trump. I want you to listen to cut two. And I understand people out there concerned about when is it going to look better. Um, Just know that uh, people uh, all over the place are working as hard as they possibly can to fight this hidden enemy. And it's going to take all of us, not only the local governments, the cities like the mayor and the state governments, all the governors, the federal government, but it takes every one of our citizens as a part of this. And we can't we can't stop it without them cooperating but it's it's going to be a while we don't know how long or how bad it's going to be but it's going to continue uh until we can get it stopped and we're just going to keep fighting it 24 hours a day until we can get it done all right chuck it's not true that people everywhere are fighting with all they got because our military is being sidelined and the white house is in denial it's just not true governor i respect you but that's just not true we've got we've got military all over our state doing all kinds of great things like you've got national guard you do not have the american helping with hospitals okay and uh building new hospital beds and your governor in new york is doing the same thing so maybe you ought to try to talk with them and see i have talked to him it is not that not everyone is doing everything they could and do. I think we're all- Let's be honest about it. 
Okay, well, let's listen to what Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York had to say about the response on coronavirus from President Trump. Let's listen to cut three. We're looking at sites across the state to find existing facilities that could expeditiously be turned into health care facilities. Uh, and again, when I said the federal response is very welcome, I want to thank the president. He said that he would bring the Army Corps of Engineers here. They came here the next day. I spoke to him last night to follow up on the meeting. So this is going forward uh, aggressively. Andrew Cuomo, hardly a conservative. He's thanking the president for his response. He said they would bring the Army Corps of Engineers to New York. They came the very next day. He also had this to say about President Trump. Cut four. I think the president was 100 percent sincere in saying that he wanted to work together uh, in partnership in a spirit of cooperation. I can tell you the actions he has taken evidence that. Uh, His team has been on it. I know a team when they're on it, and I know a team when they're not on it. His team is on it. They've been responsive late at night, early in the morning, uh, and they've uh, thus far been doing everything that they can do. And I want to say thank you, and I want to say that I appreciate it. And they will have nothing but cooperation and partnership uh, from the state of New York. Isn't that interesting? And yet Bill de Blasio is trying to slam President Trump, even as the governor of his state is praising President Trump for being completely responsive to the needs that are unfolding in New York state. So tell the truth, de Blasio. This kind of politicizing makes me nuts. It really does. Meanwhile, we have a report here from a few days ago from the New York Daily News. Here's the headline. NYC health officials threatened to resign over Mayor de Blasio's coronavirus mismanagement. Oops. Who's mismanaging things? Well, this is what the story says. Leadership at the city's health department threatened to resign over Mayor de Blasio's mishandling of this pandemic. The unrest between the department and City Hall began shortly after New York's first case of the coronavirus two weeks ago, and top health officials threatened to step down as recently as last week. At least one deputy commissioner and multiple assistant commissioners in the health department warned they would resign over de Blasio's mismanagement and reluctance to take the advice of doctors in his own administration. You remember all the yelling that the media has been doing over Trump supposedly being at odds with Fauci, Dr. Fauci, over the issue of using hydroxychloroquine uh, for this treatment of coronavirus. Oh, the president said this and he was wrong and Dr. Fauci corrected him. Listen, I like to say this about everything that's going on. How would you like to be President Trump right now? How would you like to have this kind of responsibility on your shoulders? Yes, he has a team and he has many, many people to help him, but he is the guy. He's the president. What kind of stress is that man under? He needs our prayers. He needs our support. He needs to have everything at his disposal that he needs, not only physically, materially, but spiritually. We need to pray for this man. And pray for all of our leaders to make the wise and myriad decisions that are required at this time. We're going to continue on, but first we'll take a break. We'll be back on Janet Muffer today. Hi, this is Kurt Cameron, and I am honored to be partnering with the Ministry of Preborn to help moms choose life. 
Actor Kirk Cameron supports preborn. My four oldest children were adopted. That is because of caring and compassionate people who help those young mothers choose life. My wife is an adopted child and her birth mother chose life for her. If it weren't for those caring individuals that help those young moms value the sacredness of life, I wouldn't have my wife, I wouldn't have my four adopted children, and the two natural born children that we have wouldn't exist either. My whole family is here because of people that are involved with ministries like Preborn. Preborn funds pregnancy centers across the nation so they can offer free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. Ultrasound is a game changer because when abortion-minded women actually see their babies in their wombs for themselves, 80% of the time, they choose life. Would you please join us at Janet Mefford today to support the ministry of Preborn? For $140, you can provide five free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. A gift of $22 will provide one ultrasound, and every gift helps. To donate, please call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your gift goes directly towards saving babies. You can get involved, and you can help save a life for a gift of $140. Five free ultrasounds will be offered to women in crisis pregnancies. Please call now with your gift, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Boy, my heart goes out to each and every parent who has kids at home right now. I know we do, and it's wonderful. It's fabulous, in a sense, to have your whole family around you when school is called off and colleges are sending kids home early and doing online classes. Uh, This is all new territory for everybody, but boy, it is really nerve wracking. I was out over the weekend and I happened to make a stop over at our local grocery store and it looked like Venezuela. It really did. And I know there are many people across the country experiencing the same thing. Forgot the toilet paper. You can't get pasta. Their entire dairy section was stripped of all milk. There were no eggs. And I'm thinking to myself, here's the beauty of living in the United States. The supply chain is bringing in supplies nonstop. We know that those shelves are going to be restocked. But if you're living in a communist country, you can forget it. And I'm hoping and praying that this will be a real lesson for the younger generations who don't remember the Cold War and don't remember the Soviet Union. I remember being in the Soviet Union and seeing the strip shelves every single day. That, that was a real jolt to me as a teenager to see that. Well, where's this and where's that? We don't have that. We don't have that. What are you talking about, you crazy Americans? We, I went into a shoe store. They had two pairs of shoes. Not two pairs of different shoes. They had one pair of baby shoes and one pair of size, I don't know, 15 or 16 men's shoes. That was the entire store. So if you happen to have, you know, flippers for feet, as a man, you could go and get a pair of shoes and it was kind of cheaply made shoes, or if you had a little one-year-old, you might find some shoes, and one-year-olds generally don't even need shoes because they're not walking yet. So not very helpful. But I'm hoping this will give a very strong lesson in the long run as to why capitalism is a good system to be in. Now, I want to turn to something very briefly because I thought this was really worthwhile. My friend, Reverend Al Baker, 
with whom I've spoken at the God's Voice Conference, and he's been on the show a number of times, just a wonderful man of God and such a wise Christian. He is an evangelist uh, in the PCA, but he's just fantastic. He wrote a piece, and we always want to be careful when this kind of question comes up, but is COVID-19 a judgment from God? Now, Al is not the hysterical type, so he's never coming from a place of freak out. He's very measured. He knows the word of God, but I thought I would share some of this with you. He quotes from Deuteronomy 28, 21, the Lord will make the pestilence cling to you until he has consumed you from the land. Here's what Al has to say. The coronavirus has moved from being an epidemic to a pandemic. Rarely has one event captured the attention of the entire world, but this one certainly has. So is COVID-19 a judgment from almighty God? Of course, to answer that question, we must look to scripture. As Israel was soon to enter the promised land after their wanderings in the wilderness for 40 years due to their disobedience and unbelief, Moses gathers God's covenant people together and gives them a wonderful promise in Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 14. He declares that if they are diligent to obey the commandments of God, then he will bestow blessing after blessing on them. They will be blessed in the city and the country. They will prosper. John Currid points out that the Hebrew structure of these blessings and curses follow the Near Eastern Suzerainty vassal treaty formula. That is, it was common in that day for the conquering king or the suzerain to enter a treaty with those whom he is subjugating to himself. And that would be the vassals. The suzerain begins by proclaiming who he is and what he's done. And from there promises certain blessings if the vassals submit to him and then certain curses or judgments if they refuse. Moses then gives Yahweh's people a severe word of warning listing one sordid detail after another of what they can expect if they fail to obey all the commandments and ordinances he gives them. They will be cursed in the city and the country. In verse 20, he says, Yahweh will send upon them curses, confusion, and rebuke in all they undertake to do until they are destroyed and until they perish quickly because of their evil deeds, because they had forsaken him. Then Moses says that Yahweh will make the pestilence cling to them until they are consumed from the land. Our word pestilence comes from a Latin word, which means plague. The Hebrew word used in Deuteronomy 28-21 is deber, which means pestilence, plague, and the like. He said, I counted 47 uses of deber in the Old Testament. 17 of them are found in Jeremiah's prophecy, and 10 are found in the prophecy of Ezekiel. As only one example, Jeremiah is preaching to King Zedekiah saying that the Chaldeans who have besieged the city of Jerusalem will be gathered by Yahweh and that he himself, not merely the Chaldeans, he himself, God himself will war against them with an outstretched hand and will strike them down and they will die of a great pestilence. Now, pestilence in the Bible is portrayed as a judgment of God on rebellious, idolatrous, and unrepentant people. Does this mean, though, that COVID-19 is a judgment sent from God? Well, disease and death are a result of the fall. And we can say that due to idolatry, the wrath of God is constantly being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So in a sense, every death, every disease, every catastrophe is a judgment of God on the general unbelief and ungodliness of every nation in the world. But that isn't to say that when something bad happens to someone, he's necessarily guilty of some sin and that God is bringing retribution upon that specific individual. So you look at Luke 13, people were relating to Jesus, the story of some unfortunate Galileans who were apparently killed by Pilate, who in turn had their blood mingled in his sacrifices to his false gods. Jesus raises the question if they think 
these Galileans were more wicked than other Galileans who did not suffer that way? He says, no. But then Jesus brings it practically home to those questioning him, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. In other words, every time we see a tragedy, which ultimately God ordains, we should realize that it is a wake-up call to everyone who sees it or reads about it. COVID-19 is no different, but I suggest a more specific application. COVID-19 is a pestilence. And according to the teaching of the Old Testament, it clearly is a judgment from God upon a wicked people. In this case, the whole world qualifies as wicked. What is the remedy for COVID-19? By this question, I don't mean medical, economic, or political. I have in mind the biblical remedy of repentance. Plagues come because of idolatry and a refusal to live by God's word. As Daniel says, we have sinned. We have been wicked. He beseeches God, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem. Let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen and take action for your own sake. Oh, my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. This is from Daniel 9, of course. The remedy, Al Baker says, my friends, against the ravages of COVID-19 is for believers all over the world to confess our sins of idolatry, accommodation to the world, worldliness, unbelief, greed, sexual immorality, or whatever sin the Holy Spirit makes known to us. Our prayers should not merely be for deliverance from illness or hardship or a return of a bull market or a return to normalcy. Rather, we must confess our sins individually and collectively, pouring out our hearts to the only one who can save, forgive, and restore us. To use the words of Jeremiah, therefore, thus the Lord, if you return, then I will return to you. Before me, you will stand. And if you extract the precious from the worthless, you will become my spokesman. This is from Jeremiah 15. 19. Again, from Al Baker, Evangelistic Revival Preacher with Reformed Evangelistic Fellowship. And I really appreciate what Al has to say. It's a general reminder, isn't it, that we do live in a fallen world and that in general, we are living with the results of our choices back in the garden. And Adam was our representative, just like Christ is our representative in salvation. Adam was our representative in sin. We all inherit the sin nature and all of us live it out. There isn't one person listening today, including myself, who deserves anything but hell. We deserve hell. We deserve it. We've earned it, haven't we? We've earned it. Completely earned it. We have rebelled against our creator. We have gone our own way. We have known what he has said is wrong, and we do it anyway. We sin in our hearts. We sin in our minds. We sin with our hands. We're completely guilty. And the good news is that God sent his only begotten son to die on the cross and rise again to save us, to wipe out the debt that we have incurred because of our sin by his own precious blood and to justify us before a holy God with his precious righteousness that he gives us credit for as he takes credit for our sin. It's the most amazing good news the world has ever heard. And I'll tell you what, I think this is a wonderful opportunity for the church 
to give that good news to a very scared, scared world. And I'm hoping we will take the opportunity to really make it about good news. And repentance is part of what we need to tell people. We need to repent. It's not that we want to scare people that we know God has told us that COVID-19 is a judgment on you for X, Y, or Z. We don't have that information specifically at our disposal, but we know enough about what the Word of God says that whenever we see some kind of large-scale scary situation, that it should remind us that life is short and we need to settle our lives with God, whether we're Christians or have never come to Christ. Now's the time to repent and to get our lives right with Him and to live out our lives as He sees fit by His grace and for His glory. So I pray we'll all do that as we do pray for this nation. Thank you for being with us on Janet Mefford today. Always great to have you here and we'll see you next time. This hour of Janet Mefford today has been brought to you by Bible League. Help us help Bible League send the hope of God's word to 1,200 persecuted believers. $35 sends seven Bibles and today your gift will be doubled with a limited time match. Call now, 800-YES-WORD. 800-YES-WORD. 800-YES-WORD.